Amen. Please take your Bible. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter. The last time we saw Jesus in the 10th chapter of John, He was surrounded by a group of hostiles. And they were of the worst sort of hostiles. They were religious hostiles. Jesus bore the brunt of their hostility on more than one occasion. But Jesus was not at a loss for words in this setting in response to their complaints against Him, nor was He without words that hit their target in other settings too. For instance, this same group of people were described by Jesus as a brood of vipers. That means a nest of poisonous snakes. He said about them in that same context in Matthew 23 that they strain out a gnat so that they can swallow a camel. He was using hyperbole, a form of humor, in his giving them the riot act in that particular setting. He described them as a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. In other words, he was calling them what they were, hypocrites. On the outside, they were clean and attractive. On the inside, they were full of corruption. And here, in the passage that we're going to read in just a moment and study together today, Jesus is not as caustic in the tone of what he has to say, but he's equally challenging. And the thing that amazes me when I read this passage is the incredible calmness that Jesus had. He was not in any way intimidated by the fact that this group of auspicious and at the same time suspicious characters were encircling Him. They had put a net around Him both physically and figuratively so as to trap Him and accomplish their ultimate goal of destroying Him. But Jesus was very calm. Perhaps you know the name Mark Twain. He was a man who was quite the literary man. He was a man who was full of wit virtually all the time, sometimes full of wisdom. He described a man whom he observed as being calm in this way. He had the calm confidence of a man who has four aces in his hand. Of course, he was talking about a poker game. None of you play poker very much, obviously. But nevertheless, he was talking about that. Jesus didn't have four aces in his hand, but Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew that he was the Messiah. We learned that last week. And Jesus knows that he is the Son of God. His identity is intact. And therefore, he's not afraid of anybody As we begin where we left off last week, in John 10, verse 30, Jesus makes a statement that is beyond remarkable, actually. We're going to see just how amazing the statement is, where he says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. What did Jesus mean when he makes this statement? At the very least, Jesus was claiming to be one with the Father in the matter of the Father's will. Keep your place here for a moment. Turn back to the fourth chapter of the book of John. And we're going to begin with verse 31 of John chapter 4. 
In the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples therefore were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is the first time recorded in the Gospel of John where Jesus makes reference to his coming to do the will of the Father. He was in concert with the will of the Father. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, at the very least, he's saying, I and the Father are one in the accomplishing of the Father's will. Now turn one chapter further in your Bible, in the book of John, and let's look at verse 30. John 5.30 Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus sounds somewhat like a broken record. But we know He never says anything twice without heightening its importance. Not to be outdone, Jesus goes to John chapter 6 here, verse 37. Another setting, another time. And look what he says, beginning with verse 37 of John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is one with the Father as it relates to the doing of the Father's will. Look back at chapter 10 for a moment. Let's go back to two verses which we considered in depth last week. Look at verses 28 and 29. And Jesus says, I give eternal life to my sheep. And they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We see the Father and the Son in total agreement. And Jesus is in unity with the Father, a great unity. But this unity was more than simply a unity of purpose. It was more. Unity of purpose of the accomplishment of God's will for him. Only a full claim of deity by Jesus Christ would have elicited such a uproarious kind of response to what Jesus has just said in verse 30. Look what happens in verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Probably you know that in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, verse 16, that if anyone blasphemed the name of God, that person was to be stoned, not just by the religious leaders, but the entire congregation. Please understand that Jesus had, in their minds, blasphemed God. What does that mean, to blaspheme God? Jesus had equated himself... With God the Father. Mathematically, Jesus 
equals God the Father, is what Jesus was saying. And when these people picked up stones to stone him because of an apparent violation of the law of God in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16 about blasphemy, they were right. Jesus had claimed to be God. And it was no false boast. Jesus is God. They thought that he was not God, but he had elevated himself to a level like God, and it had been a violation of the commandment that leads off all the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, punishable by being stoned in this kind of situation. Well, this was not the first time that Jesus had faced the prospect of being stoned. In the Gospel of John, there are four different occasions when this happens. This is one. This is the third one. The fourth one occurs in the 11th chapter of this great book of John. But one that stands out in my mind takes place the first day that Jesus began His public ministry in His hometown of Nazareth. You remember the setting. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath and He takes the scroll which was from Isaiah, and he begins to read it, and he begins to explain it, and then he applies it, and he said, this is about me. It was a passage having to do with the Messiah. And the people were listening with rapt attention until he began to describe how this message applied not only to the descendants of Abraham, not only to people who were Jews, but also to Gentiles. And he uses illustrations from the Old Testament, as we would call it, the Hebrew Scriptures. He uses illustrations of people who came under the grace of God and that applied to them as Gentiles. And that infuriated that crowd in the synagogue. The Scripture tells us they took Jesus. They took Him to the brow of the hill upon which Nazareth even today sits. And they were ready to throw him off that cliff to his death. There were two ways to stone a person. One was the conventional method of picking up rocks and throwing. The other was to take a person as the inhabitants of the synagogue in Nazareth did and throw the person over to a place several feet below that would result in the person's dying by landing on rocks. So Jesus was familiar with this scenario already. Look at the way in which He answers their attempt. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning Me? Here Jesus presents His first argument for His being God, the Son of God. He says, I'm appealing to My works Notice that Jesus bypasses His words to go to His works. Because it's conceivable for an individual to say things without backing them up. But Jesus backs them up with His works. And notice the way in which Jesus describes these works. He calls them good works. There were two words available to Jesus which He could use here to to describe something as good. The one which he chooses is not the one I would have thought reading it in English, but when I began to consult it in the language of the New Testament, I learned that it was the word that I had not expected. It literally means beautiful. Consider my beautiful works, 
Jesus said. Because they bear witness to the fact that I am God become man. Let's think for just a moment about what we've heard from the Gospel writer about such good works. The first one that I would allude to is found in the last part of the fourth chapter of John. Maybe you remember. There was a nobleman who came to Jesus. This nobleman's son was deathly ill. And therefore, the man comes and he pleads with Jesus, Jesus, if you will simply say the word, my son can be made well. And the man heard Jesus say, I'll come with you. And then the man says, you don't have to come. All you have to do is say the word. Jesus, sensing the faith of the man, said, okay, your son is well. As the man made his way home, I would imagine the closer he got to his estate, the more rapid his feet took him. And then in the distance, he saw a group of his servants. He knew who they were soon by the way in which they walked. And then they were also quickening their pace as they were coming to him. And when they met, they met him with these words, Sir, your son is well. And then you may recall what the man said to them. What time was it when he was made well? And they told him, and he said, that's the exact time that Jesus had told me your son is well. A beautiful work. Go to the next chapter, the fifth chapter of John. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. We're not told which festival it might have been. Some say the Passover, some tabernacles, but he comes there. The city is thronged with people. There's a festive atmosphere in the city. People are gathering in the temple environment, wanting to get close to the action. But interestingly, Jesus does not go to the temple. Rather, He goes to the place where the outcasts of the city were. He goes to a place called the Pool of Bethesda because it was thought that from time to time, the angel of the Lord would come to the Pool of Bethesda and would stir the waters. And it was also believed that the first person who got in the pool upon noticing the stirring of the waters by the angel of the Lord, would be made well. Jesus focused on one man there. That's the way Jesus works, by the way. In a crowd like this, Jesus would be focusing, and probably is in some way, in someone's heart this morning, on an individual. And he looks at this man, 38 years a cripple. Can you imagine? He had to be transported from wherever he lived to that pool of Bethesda in order to have one shot, a long shot at that, of being made well. And he looks at him and he asks him an odd question. Do you want to get well? Well, if the man were like us, he might say, duh, yes, I'm here. But the man responds with yes to the Lord. And the Lord says, well, then take up your mat and walk. Now imagine the challenge that would have been to this man's faith. 38 years a cripple. I was a cripple for 10 weeks as a teenager. Suffered an injury, was in a hip to foot, bottom of foot cast for six weeks when the person who came in, I don't know if it was a nurse, some attendant, to my orthopedic surgeon to remove with a saw. I was afraid to go to get my leg cut off, you know. Remove this cast. 
And when I look at my leg, I almost fainted. I'm not kidding. I thought, oh my goodness, I'll never walk again. It didn't even vaguely resemble the leg that I had before the injury. But after four more weeks of walking on crutches and doing, if you want to call it, some kind of physical therapy, there really wasn't a science to any extent in that area in 1966 when this happened. But nevertheless, I was able to regain my capacity to walk again. But it took ten weeks to walk without the aid of something. But this man immediately gets up and walks. I would say that's a beautiful work. Wouldn't you? In the next chapter, Jesus is faced with an incredible crowd of people, over 5,000 people, and He does not have food to feed them, nor money enough to buy enough food to feed that large number of people. And He had compassion on them. And He took some loaves and fishes, not many, from a little lad whose mother evidently had packed him a meal to go listen to Jesus to teach And he transformed that into enough food to feed the 5,000 and then have 12 baskets full left over. A beautiful work. And then more recently in the ninth chapter, a man born blind, Christ restores his vision. A beautiful work. Now this is something I would be remiss if I didn't take note of. These were amazing miracles. And they all pointed to the deity of Jesus Christ. They are what John describes as signs. There are seven signs in the Gospel of John. I've mentioned four of them, of the seven. They are amazing miracles. But have you ever stopped to think that not only were these miracles, but they were mercies? Mercy to a man whose child was at death's door. Mercy to a man who had not walked in 38 years. Mercy to over 5,000 hungry people. Mercy to a man born blind. Do you know Jesus is not primarily about the show? Do you know what I'm saying? He's not so much interested in wowing people with the way He has the capacity to override the laws of nature to accomplish things. As impressive as those things are. Jesus is about mercy. He's about doing things for people that they could never do for themselves. He's about transforming lives. And Jesus says, the works that I do are beautiful works. They are good works. And these works themselves, if you really stop and think because of who you are. You are the power brokers of Israel, but you also are the ones who should know and claim to know the Scriptures. And you would know the prophecies regarding the Messiah would say in many places, and he might have even had in mind Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, where the Word of God talks about the Messiah, how the Messiah is going to restore sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He's going to restore a voice to the man who is dumb. And He's going to let the lame leap like a deer. Isn't that what we've read about, thought about this morning from the Gospel of John? But notice the way in which these blind guides, as Jesus called, these hypocrites, the religious leaders, the hostiles, how they answered Him in verse 33, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be 
God. Now let me stop here. Did Jesus make himself to be a God? Hardly. Jesus was a God before Abraham. Jesus was a God before history as we know it. Jesus was a God when there had been nothing made. The way in which the Gospel begins, speaking of Jesus as the Word, the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And nothing has come into being that has come into being. And then Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He was saying, I'm God, wasn't He? Of course He was saying that. And in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is in effect saying it again. I and the Father are one. I am God. Now Jesus goes one step further. He says, if you don't believe my words, believe my works. Because they point to who I am. I am the Messiah and I am the Son of God. I am God become man. Equal with God the Father. Not just another God with a little g. I am fully God. And of course, He was fully human. But now He goes back to His words. He says, My words witness as well to who I am. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now let's go back to Psalm 82, which we read from earlier in the worship service, and revisit this rather puzzling statement written by Asaph, the psalmist, repeated by Jesus in his argument regarding his deity with these religious leaders who were hostile to him. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 82, remembering that Asaph, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is reading the riot act to the judges of Israel. These judges were appointed by God. And a judge in Israel sat in the place of God. And the judgments which were rendered by that particular judge, any judge, was actually to be a judgment in keeping with the law of God. Not that man's view of it, but what does the law of God say? But what was happening in the day of Asaph, as we read the entire psalm, is that there was this double standard which was being used to evaluate people. One standard for the rich, another standard for the poor. One standard for the one who would bribe them, one for those who refused to offer a bribe. And so God was not pleased with the behavior of these judges who are so-called gods. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Exodus chapter 21. And we're going to look at the first six verses of Exodus chapter 21. The scripture says in Exodus 21, 1, 
Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him permanently. Now look at the first line of verse 6. Then his master shall bring him to God. An alternate reading of this is given by the New American Standard Bible, and this is the way it reads. It says this. It says that the judges, then his master shall bring him to the judges who acted in God's name. Confirming what I've already said. These judges sat in the place of God. That's important. Let's read now verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 82 again. And I said, you are gods, and all of your sons are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Now let's stop here just a moment. What do we know about the one true God? We know many things. But one of the things we know, I just read it yesterday in the book of Isaiah, it says He is the everlasting God. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's eternal. So when there's a reference in verse 6 of Psalm 82 to people who are described as gods, obviously they're not really God. Why? Because they're going to die. They are these people who are standing or sitting in the place of God as authorities appointed by God. Even in our New Testament, if we took time, we could go to Romans, the 13th chapter, and there we would read God saying through the pen of the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying that God has established the governing authorities to keep control and peace in the land. So there are people today who fit this role as well. So what we see Jesus doing is we go back to chapter 10 of John, verses 34 through 36, he's reasoning from the lesser to the greater. The lesser being these human beings whom God has appointed to speak on his behalf in matters requiring judgment. He said, if those men, according to your law, according to the scripture that cannot be broken... If those men can be called gods, why not call me the God? Because of what? The things which I have done, beautiful things that only God can do, and also the words which I have spoken. So let's read these verses one more time together. Verses 34 through 36. Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? God sent the word of God. The word of God came to those judges referred to in Psalm 82 and now 
referred to once more by Jesus. God sent God Himself in human form in the person of Jesus. He sanctified Him. In other words, He set Jesus Christ apart for His great role of our Savior in our Lord. Therefore, Jesus is saying, My words are true and they speak of who I am. I am the Son of God. In summation about this rather puzzling text, if it's permissible to call men gods because they were vehicles of the Word of God, how much more permissible is it to use the term God of Him who is the incarnate Word of God? So, why does Jesus claim to be God? Well, we've seen the arguments. The argument first is, look at my works. They witness of me. Listen to my words. They also tell you who I am, and they are true words. Now, let's look at verse Verses 37 and 38 and 39, actually, of John 10. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. He's given me an opportunity. Don't believe me if I don't do the works. He was confident he was doing the works of the Father. And here's why he was confident. Listen, you don't have to turn there. But in John chapter 5, listen to what Jesus says. We've heard it before. It's worth hearing again. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, speaking of Himself, can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. You want to know who Jesus is? God is, rather? Look at Jesus. You want to know what the Father does, what the will of God is? Look to Jesus. Jesus only did what He saw the Father doing, only said what he heard the Father saying. Look at verse 38. But if I do them, that would be the works of God, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. And this set them off again. Not only did he say, said, I and the Father are one, but he says, I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. That was, again, another strike against Jesus in the minds of his enemies, these hostile religious leaders, because here again he was making, making himself equal with the Father. And so we read what happened next in verse 39. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him. Pay careful attention to this simple little phrase, they were seeking him. And that does not mean they just made one attempt to arrest Jesus so they could stone Him. But they were making repeated attempts to do this. Unsuccessful attempts, obviously, because Jesus eluded their grasp. Now, let me ask you this question. Was Jesus wanting to get out of there? He was in the temple area in Jerusalem. Was He wanting to get out of there because He was afraid of these men? No. Jesus has no fear of man whatsoever. None whatsoever. So what motivated Jesus to elude the grasp of these enemies? 
Well, let me suggest a couple of answers to the question. One motivation that moved Jesus out of there was that he knew the time of his death was not to be at that time of the year. Remember what John the Baptist said in describing Jesus. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified on the time of Passover. And it was not time yet. There were three more months before the next Passover. So that was one reason he was skedaddling. He was getting out of there because he knew this was not the time that God had chosen. And you probably also recall at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus is retreating with his apostles, and he asks them, who do men say that I am? And they begin to give the answer. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're the prophet. Then he says, but who do you say that I am? And what does, does Peter say? You are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then right after that, Jesus begins to unveil what's going to happen to him, to his apostles. And he says, they're going to crucify me in Jerusalem. What difference does that make? It makes all the difference in the world, frankly, for you and for me and for the descendants of Abraham as well. Here's why. If they had stoned him, they would have been in their rights as far as they understood who Jesus was, thinking he was a blasphemer with stones. But it was predetermined. God's plan was, according to Acts 22, chapter 2, 22 through 23, by the predetermined plan of God the Father that Jesus be crucified. It was his plan. Why crucifixion? Well, Paul helps us here in the book of Galatians. Listen carefully. In Galatians 3.13, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. Christ became a curse for us in order to redeem us because it is written, curse is every man who is hanged on a tree. We were under the curse of the law of God. The law of God embedded in the Old Testament means simply this, I must make myself right with God. I must live a perfect life. The reality is nobody keeps the law perfectly. So that puts us in a huge bind, doesn't it? But what did God do? God's plan of salvation was to put Christ to death Himself. God the Father put Jesus to death. Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order He might bring us to God. But it was God Himself who cursed Jesus because of the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 21-23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus eluded His would-be captors and killers and He went away. Now let's consider the last three verses of this chapter. When we get to these verses, I don't know about you, but sometimes I come to these short narrative parts in the book of John, and they're sort of anticlimactic. I just let my guard down and really don't listen carefully to what they have to say. But there is great truth for everyone in this room. So listen as we read. 
And Jesus went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. Theophylact, a name that I know all of you are familiar with, he was a second century church father. He wrote extensively. He, on the basis of this little verse, he says Christians ought to be in the habit of taking retreats away from the hustle and bustle of everyday life. Jesus is leaving the metropolis and the holy city of Jerusalem. And He goes to the wilderness. And He goes to no unspecified area. He goes to a particular area. It's where John the Baptist had been baptizing. And what do you recall about John the Baptist and the relationship Jesus and he had? Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist there. And in that moment of his baptism, as he emerged from the Jordan River, you may recall that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, and Jesus heard these words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It was affirmation that Jesus needed. Jesus was getting ready to go and face his fiercest audience when he was going to go and just a couple of months back to Jerusalem on Passover and to be mistrialed and put to death on a cruel Roman cross. Now let me stop here just a moment. This is a lesson for us. It's important for us to retreat often. And to, in our mind's eye at least, go back to that place where we came to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, where He saved us, took away our sins, made us right with God. Occasionally, not too often, but occasionally, I go back to my place. It was in a church auditorium, not as nicely appointed as this one, probably three times as large. It was packed with people because on that particular day, we had the first day of what would be two weeks of special services with a great evangelist of the gospel from San Antonio, Texas, Angel Martinez. And he preached the gospel. I was just a boy. I had been thinking about coming to Christ, giving my life to Jesus. My mother and I had had many conversations. She told me, I don't remember all those conversations, but I know she told me the truth about the questions I was asking. I was just plying her with questions, questions. What does it mean to be saved? and what it, What's all that about? And she told me she was very patient with me. She was not there that day, nor was my father. My father uncharacteristically had to work. Mother was home taking care of a sick child. I came with neighbors who were kind enough to bring me. I heard the gospel as I'd never heard it before, and I trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Instantly I knew I had been changed. Even as boy, I knew I had been forgiven of my sin. I knew that I had received eternal life. And may I tell you this? For over six decades now, I have never doubted that I'm a child of God because of what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. The assurance of salvation comes when you receive Christ based upon what He has to say. Well, fast forward 14 years. I have, my Christian life was like this for the next 14 years. 
mountaintop experiences, go to a church camp, have another revival meeting in the church, and then I would bottom out. And it seemed like every trough was a little deeper as I moved from childhood into adolescence and then young adulthood. And then I found myself in 1972 in my pastor's study. I don't remember what we've been talking about. I know it had to do with the Lord. And I found myself on my knees with my elbows on a couch sofa there. And I began weeping as I cried out to the Lord, saying, Lord, I have withheld my heart from you. I have not set apart you as Lord Jesus in my heart. And I must give you all there is of me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. It was a wonderful experience. It was painful but wonderful as I repented of my sin, confessed my sin. From that day forward, that's been 46 years ago. Long time. Some of you aren't even that old. Many of you aren't. 46 years. There have been moments when I've had to come back, renew. I never lost my salvation, but I've come back when I've become conscious of sin in my life. And the Lord has been so gracious. Yesterday morning, I retreated. I have a so-called quiet time virtually every day, early in the day. And I woke earlier than normal yesterday. And when I awoke, I thought, something's bothering me for me to wake up this early. But I tried to go back to sleep. Fifteen minutes of tossing and turning. I thought to myself, well, I'm going to read my Bible and get that over with so I can go on with the day. Any of you ever had that attitude towards your Bible reading in the morning? I'm going to check that one off the list. But as God would have it, it was a different day. And I wrote, opened the Bible, and the reading in the map journal which I'm following was from Isaiah 40 and 41. And I was stunned. I have read that at least 45 times before, at least. And I've been ministered to by it. But there was one verse which stood out. It says, and I was flagging. My faith was fainting. And I, I needed encouragement. And God gave it to me. And this is what the Scripture says. They that wait upon the Lord, or hope in the Lord, depending on the translation, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. I said, oh, thank you, Lord. I needed this so badly, Lord. Thank you. And even as I'm telling the story again, it's one of those times of going back, even though it was just a day or so ago, going back and remembering an encounter with the Lord and the circumstances of the encounter. I came to work yesterday, and I was full of energy all day yesterday. Saturdays are usually my worst days because Sunday's coming. <laughs> and I won't go into why that's true, but it's true for most preachers probably. But I came to work. I had a Bible study with a group of brothers. I met with another brother to help him with something he asked me to help him with. Then I had a meeting with a man whom I'm discipling. And he came in and I said, tell me what's going on, brother. And he began to tell me what's going on. And I thought, wow, Lord, what you say in Isaiah is true. That the Lord God has given me the tongue of a disciple so that I might have a word to sustain the weary one. As I listened to this young man's story, he's half my age, I listened to his story. It was 
complimented by what I had read that morning. I gave that to him and he was visibly encouraged. He was changed. Why? The Word of God is living and active and sharper than the two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And when we receive something in retreat, even if it's just for a half an hour, an hour, retreat along with the Lord, and we have that access every day. Do you understand Are you down in the dumps today? Are you finding yourself frequently in the doldrums? There is one way out. It's not kickstart. It's not monster energy. It's not coffee. It's not any drug of choice. It's Jesus Christ Himself. He's the one who will pick you up. And it's not simply just a hyper kind of experience. It's His speaking to you. And He will set you free because if we abide in His Word, we are truly His disciples and the truth will set you free. I am amazed at myself how slow I am spiritually sometimes. And you probably should be too. When you languish in the backwaters of depression and you don't take time to spend time alone with the One as we read for our verse, Psalm 1611, What does it say? In your presence there is what? Fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are treasures forevermore. Pleasure forevermore. Where are you if you're a sheep of Christ? You're in His right hand. So, look up instead of looking inward or around you. Look up to the Lord Jesus knew the value of that, and so should we. Let's go back and finish the text. And many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's think quickly about some things which John the Baptist said about Jesus. He says, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He goes on to say, when Jesus is coming his way, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, this is he of whom I said, he has a higher rank than I because he existed before me. He says, in that case, what's he talking about? Jesus pre-existed. He's saying he's God. And then he flat out says it in the 34th verse of the same chapter, 1 of John. He said, this one is the Son of God. And these people remember the things which John the Baptist had said. They were the Word of God and they stuck in their heads. And when they saw Jesus after Jesus had been ministering for the better part of three years, they say everything that he said about him is true. And many believe in Jesus. Now, I hope you know that the idea that is portrayed in Scripture, especially in the book of John, about believing in Christ is not just believing intellectually. There is a set of truths that we need to understand in order to make a commitment to Jesus that's real. But you can have all that right and still be without Christ. We have to believe, actually, the word is not in Him, literally, from the original language, believe into Him. Trust in Him alone for salvation. Let me illustrate what that means. In the early 
19th century, there was a man born in France. His name was Jean-Francois Gravelet. He later became known by his stage name Blondine. He was the rage on the continent of Europe. He decided to take his act across the Atlantic and he set up shop at Niagara Falls. He had a 1,000 foot tightrope strung from one bank across that great body of water, 160 feet above the water line. And he began to walk back and forth across and the crowds grew and grew and grew and he became richer and richer and richer. He decided to do something a little different because the crowds began to wane because so many people had seen. So he took a wheelbarrow and, rode it and rolled it all the way across. Can you imagine a thousand feet in that situation? And then back across. Then he decided one day he would let the people know he was going to stop at the midway point and he was going to cook an egg omelet. And he did it. I don't know if he ate it or not, but he did it. And then one day he enlisted a man and paid him handsomely for riding on his back as he walked across Niagara Falls, turned around and came back over. When he had completed that journey, the the crowd was huge and it just roared with appreciation. And he looked at a man who was standing right in front of him and he said, do you believe I could do that with you? And the man said, yes, I do. He said, then hop on. And the man said, not on your life. (laughs) That man had intellectual faith, didn't he, in Blondie? but he didn't really trust him. Are you like that man? You have intellectual understanding about Jesus, but you haven't sold out to Christ, given Him full control. That's what's necessary to have eternal life. You won't get it. You won't be a sheep until you say, Lord, with Your help, I'm going to follow You no matter what. Would you bow your head? If you're in that category of a person who is yet to sell out to the Lord wholeheartedly. Would you just admit that to Jesus right now? Say, Lord, I need you. I want you. I want this life that you promised. The abundant life. I want the security that can only be found in you, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, for trying to run my own life. Take full control of me. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. We're going to stand now. The pastors will be here to receive anybody who might come, who wishes to confess publicly Jesus is Lord, knowing that if we do, the guarantee is from Jesus, He'll confess us before the Father when He comes with His holy angels. You come as God has spoken to you today as we have this time of commitment. You come. God bless you. Hope you have a great week in the Lord.